Today, on the last Sunday of summer, I'm going on a field trip. When you spend enough time in quarantine, the outside world begins to look strange. Roads once riddled with potholes are paved anew. Stores I used to haunt are now shuttered closed. And I swear, the leaves are changing color earlier than last year. You think you know the order of things until one day you don't. Anyway, today's outing is special. I'm visiting St. Patrick's Island in Calgary's East Village. It's adjacent to Fort Calgary, situated where the Bow River and Elbow River meet, which is a significant location as it marks a historic meeting place for Indigenous peoples centuries ago. It's a sacred area in the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 Nations in southern Alberta, as well as the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. St. Patrick's Island went underdeveloped until it was decided by the Calgary Municipal Land Corporation to create a park on the land. They enlisted W Architecture and Civitas to do the job. I'm visiting to see the redevelopment for myself and to understand the context of the park within Calgary and Treaty 7 land. It's a busy Sunday afternoon with people on skateboards, bikes, and even some people on flotation devices passing. As we walk further into the park, we pass a large mound in the center, and it opens up into a playground, and you can hear the sound of cars passing on Memorial Drive. We've reached a critical spot at the park, and, and there's a plaque right at the river's edge that reads, Old Man's Vision Place, the confluence in Blackfoot territory. It goes on to say, When the Northwest Mounted Police built Fort Calgary in 1875, they chose a significant spot. The Blackfoot say, This is where Nappy, Old Man, created people. Nappy was traveling north and stopped to make a man from the mud on the riverbank. On his return, Nappy was surprised that he could talk to the man. The animals had taught him to speak. I'm lonely, the man said. Nappy took more mud and made woman. Once I left the park, I had this feeling, this impression that everything I had seen was on purpose. The architects of the park took pains to develop areas for children to play, people to sit, meet, meander. I wasn't sure if I liked it. How do you reconcile a park like that, which took $45 million to develop, with the important indigenous history of the area? They changed the narrative of the land. But for most people breezing through who don't read the plaques or take a minute to acknowledge the land that they're on. It's, it's simply a city park. 
nothing less, nothing more. So, what does St. Patrick's Island have to do with today's episode? I'm going to be calling my friend Clara, who is an architect from Los Angeles, California. She studied cultural anthropology from UCLA and graduated from Columbia University with a Master's of Architecture. I'm interested in asking her about the role of the architect and how spaces can garner new meaning and context within larger histories and realities. Clara. Hey, Marie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing okay. It's a. It's a lot cooler this morning, so. Um, oh, that's the day good. Feels like it's going to be um, manageable. <laughs> that's good. How how hot did it get last week? Um, it got. I mean, in Fahrenheit, it it got. All oh, um, right. <laughs> like not, yeah, sorry. It got up to like ninety eight. I think it's in Celsius. That's like thirty six. Oh wow! Um, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. The weather here hasn't been too bad. It's it's cooled down. Like our summers here are so short. It's gonna be like snowing in like two weeks probably. Oh my gosh! I yeah. That's as as a you know Los Angeles native. I cannot. I can't imagine. <laughs> Living uh, with with winter most of the year. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, like, how are you doing in quarantine right now? Have things kind of mellowed, or or is it kind of still strange? Well, I feel like right now there's a lot of uncertainty on like how much we how much quarantine needs to continue in the way that it has before. Um, but I'm. I'm really not ready to, <laughs> yeah, lessen any of my lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of my headspace, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I fe- I definitely feel that I've actually made a-, a shift, and I wasn't really sure when that happened, but, I mean, why it happened. I know when it happened. It happened about, like, a week and a half ago, and all of a sudden, I had energy, Oh, and it was wow. the first time I had had energy since 2019. Oh, um, wow. That's incredible. That's great. <laughs> I mean, it's really exciting for me because quarantine kind of was preventing me from being um, creative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, preventing me from um, even reading. I just didn't have, I just felt the sense of, I don't know. Maybe hopelessness. Is, yeah, it's is the overwhelming. Right yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I think probably what spurred this on this energy was I bought a sewing machine. Oh, that's excellent! So that's been invigorating you creatively. Yeah, I mean, I when I was about twelve, I started altering my own clothes and um, painting my clothes, and so all of high school, I would wear. In high 
high school was the first time I didn't have to wear uniforms to school. And okay. so I started, um, you know, getting really excited about what, I, what was I going to wear today? <laughs> and, um, I also was a really big movie fan. So I, um, would take inspiration from films that I saw to try to like recreate some outfits. Oh, wow. or, yeah, but it was, it was all hand, hand sewn stuff because I was too intimidated by a sewing machine. Oh my gosh, so you made entire outfits like with a needle and thread? Yeah, just by hand. Wow. And um, I would need to bring safety pins with me everywhere I went because <laughs> they would break apart while I was wearing them. Um, but yeah, and, and I just stopped doing that um, when I went to college. And I was you know, reflecting on how that was such a, you know, wonderful creative outlet for me in high school. And yeah, I was thinking like, it's been 20 years since I started to think, oh, I want to sew. And so why not just buy a sewing machine now? Yeah, it's so funny. Like now that everyone's in quarantine, there's all this time, but there's two sides of it. Like you were saying, it's either overwhelming or people find it great and then they can get creative again but I think I was similar to you at the beginning it was just overwhelming to think about anything (laughs) yeah and when I did sit down to do something it was like I just would think why am I doing this is this even important you know what what is my goal with this which I think is the worst thing to (laughs) think when you sit down (laughs) to do anything creative um but also my training in architecture, I feel like actually that really made my mind more critical and made me oh, yeah. really have to plan everything that I was going to do before I did it so that I could be efficient. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah, that that's so like hard. I, yeah. yeah. I learned some valuable skills, but it also really, I think, impeded my creativity. So Yeah, that's yeah. interesting when something becomes institutionalized or you're studying it for school becomes more like work I guess yeah yeah and and since the I mean the training is for like a professional degree they're really getting us set up to work you know Mm -hmm. with this as our profession so the goal usually is just to how do you get the amount of work done that you need to get done in the time frame yeah Um, right you have maybe a week of creativity in the beginning, and then after that, it's just, you know, executing oh, that idea. So. Yeah, and that's important. I was, yeah. I'm curious how you decided to pursue architecture, because I know you did anthropology first. What inspired you? Yeah, so it was a really strange route that I took. <laughs> Honestly, part of my interest in um, architecture was that it was a profession that had an artistic component to it and it it was a way to get skills that could help me be artistic but also could help me get a good job yeah for (laughs) sure that was definitely part of my interest what inspired me actually was um work by actually non-architects let me be more specific so I worked at this museum called the Museum of Jurassic Technology mm-hmm. and it's a really really strange museum <laughs> um in Los Angeles 
I mean, it, it just, when you walk in, it seems it's like a fire hazard. It's really oh my dark. Gosh. It's really dark and it's really um, a labyrinth. The walls are, you know, made of fabric and all of the exhibits are kind of just, you know, crammed in one next to another. And you kind of can't tell where one exhibit ends and another oh, one begins, interesting. which is which is intentional, and the darkness of the experience is also intentional, but I saw working at the front desk how transformative the experience Mm -hmm. of moving through this space was for people, Yeah, and for seeing, it wasn't just, you know, the artifacts that were on display, which were very weird, and um, pseudo-scientific sometimes, and sometimes actually scientific, Uh, but way people experience the space um and I could see it you know when people would exit the museum like every day and and I also felt that it made me really excited to <laughs> create a space of my own okay. and that that I think is what initially sparked yeah. my interest to ask you about one of your projects that I saw, the After Arrest series of drawings that you did, that you co-authored. I know that you did those originally in 2017. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project and how it came to be? Yeah, so this uh, this set of drawings, I mean, it, it can be formatted in a couple different ways. Really what it is, is one long section diagrammatic section Mm -hmm. through the criminal justice system from the moment of arrest to the moment of detainment. And so this came about because of actually a design studio that I was in in 2016 in the fall with uh, Laura Kurgan, who is an amazing activist academic. Mm -hmm. And the theme of that uh, design studio for architecture school was um, Close Rikers. And so Rikers Island is, of course, uh, a notorious jail in New York City that's on an island yeah. just north of um, Queens and, and just south of the Bronx. And in, in this studio, we not only learned that you know 90% of the people that are being held on Rikers Island have not been charged with a crime, but wow. yeah, which people think of Rikers Island as a as a jail for like the the gang members and yeah. all you know all of this like terrible New York crime, but really it's people who are too poor to make bail. And so, being in this class, we you know researched the criminal justice system, and um, we were trying to figure out ways for design to intervene, along with policy, to change the current state of the cycle. Um, a friend of mine and I chose to look at. Uh, from the moment of arrest to the, the moment of detainment. And we did research in that studio on it. But in the summer of uh, 2017, we were asked by this online architecture and urbanism journal called Urban, Urban Omnibus mm-hmm. to create a timeline. We already had created, you know, each of us our own created a rough timeline um, of the first 24 yeah. to 36 hours after arrest. But we came together to kind of meld our drawings together and do more research. 
in this drawing, we're using the kind of the tools of architectural representation to show, to kind of like visualize what these spaces look like and also the process from one to the other. But the reason why we felt that this was such a critical thing to make was because, um, you know, the interiors of jails and yeah. uh, the courts and, and all of these, quote, secured spaces mm-hmm. can't be photographed. Um, you know, if you aren't arrested, you don't know what they look like. And additionally, when you're arrested, you don't know how long you will stay in a certain space. Um, and you don't know necessarily what your rights are for how long you will stay in that space. Yeah. And so this this drawing was to show people you know, this is actually what happens to you in the first 24 and 36 mm-hmm. hours after arrest. This is what your rights are. These are the opportunities that you can leave the system. Uh, these are what the spaces might look like. Uh, and just to give the person yeah. who's being arrested a little bit more agency in the process to know what's going to happen to them. So, yeah. And we just republished it on Instagram over the summer mm-hmm. um, in June during all the protests to um, try to get the information out there to people you know, yeah. who might be arrested for the first time because of protesting or because of, you know, the curfew, um, breaking the curfew. So that felt like probably the most relevant yeah, way that we share that work. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, like, recently that whole project kind of took on new meaning in an urgent way. Yeah, it. it I mean, it felt really positive to be able to use this work um to you know to help yeah a movement and to help people realize what they're going to have to deal with so they can prepare and realize oh I can handle this um you know especially if they're white they would be treated differently in the criminal justice system in the United States yeah um, and so they would know exactly what they would be dealing with and when they would be able to exit the system yeah, and it's nice that it's um, out there and that anyone from any background can access that and see what, like, you know, the standard is. And and I don't know, like, if they have the power to, like, hold people accountable, but they'll, they'll know when like, something isn't right or is uh, their rights are being violated. Yeah, and that's so incredibly important for, for people to know because... The criminal justice system really, I mean, it's really about dominating mm-hmm. anybody who comes in regardless of if they are guilty or innocent. Um, or even if the, the supposed crime that they were arrested for, you know, even matters or is even relevant right. or is even a good crime, you know. like Yeah. Um, luckily, things have changed since we um, made that drawing, such as um, bail in New York City they've gotten rid of cash bail so more people can leave um, the criminal justice system than before. Yeah. Um, Which is really actually very positive. Um, Yeah, definitely.
Well, I find that project so important and, and really interesting. And I, I found like a little bio that you wrote online um, about the role of the architect. And you said it was to help create spaces that change social processes and alter unequal power relations, um, which is amazing. So I, I'm wondering if we could talk about how you see the role of the architect and can it be an activist role, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. Okay, let me, let me think where I'm going to start with this. Um, <laughs> yeah. In terms of the criminal justice system, um, I think the architect actually has a really important role. Mm-hmm. The architect is really supposed to be, you know, they work for the client. And in the criminal justice system, the client is the Department of Corrections right. or, you know, the state's government. Um, they don't work for the people who are being incarcerated. And so all of the stuff they put into the system usually is at the behest of, you know, the, you know this is what the Department of Corrections right. believes is the best thing to do um, when that might not actually be backed up by, you know, a- any sort of mm-hmm. studies or, you know, whatever. So I think that he, it's, it's a very difficult position for the architect to be in because, you know, their livelihood depends on their ability to, um, you know, tell, tell these, to, to yeah. just deliver what the client wants. But through, through design, there are, I think, a lot of ways to kind of give, you know, I, I can't really name any right now, but I think mm-hmm. there are ways to try to give people a better experience of a system or, um, and even question, um, you know, some of the the client's priorities and, and to, you know, even be a sounding board or, you know, as somebody who's coming in saying, you know, actually to me, the way this seems is X, Y, and Z. There's also kind of the other flip side where, you know, architects say like, we don't, we're not going to design you know, any detainment facilities. We're not going to design any of these, um, you know, yeah. spaces of um, oppression, um, which I think is also valid. Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, design, apart from having a specific client, design can be a way to show people that the world can be different and look different. Yeah. And that's something that I've experienced um many times and I've experienced it when I was taking the studio to close mm-hmm. Rikers and I proposed um an alternative courtroom that um that kind of like subverted the hierarchy of seating yeah. and um made things very movable in the space so that um the roles weren't fixed into the different pieces of furniture like they are now you know the judge's desk is immovable and it's above everybody else but in a space where um you know the just people's bodies are oriented differently they have space for mobility um you know you know maybe maybe people will understand that their roles are, are not constant but they're always changing and and you know like they can reflect on that in in the system yeah um, I, you know, when I was presenting this work during my final review, it, it allowed the people who were, you know, critiquing my work to see, oh, this is what an alternative wor- world mm-hmm. could look like. Um, you know, this is, might not be something that somebody else thought of before. 
And even when I was in Mongolia and I did this project to like redesign or to add a component to like this um, housing typology that most Mongolians mm-hmm. use, they, they said, no, it, it can't be done. And then when I showed them a, an image of a model that I made, yeah. they, were, they were just like, oh, yeah, that can be done. Can do that, <laughs> you know, and all it took was just looking at a, a, a different, like an image of, of something an, of an alternative, um, you know, to yeah. their, their current system. Yeah, it's almost like the architect, their role is to show people, like you said, how things can be different and the tools that you have, like your drawings and your your planning, make that possible for people to visualize things, to be different and and better, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it could definitely go in the other direction. (laughs) I had a classmate who was kind of like obsessed with this like um, dystopian authoritarian <laughs> oh, world and would just create work that reflected that and everyone was like why why are mm-hmm. you why did you make this and you know he he just he just had an interest in it so um, yeah that's that's interesting too because it is an art form where do you separate your social responsibility from your tastes I don't know if you've experienced that you you sound like someone who would think about the social aspect before you would create something but I, I know there's probably architects out there who just want to make things look really cool <laughs> yeah and and I think I mean most of the people that, that want to make things look really cool and that's entirely how they're driven they're they they they're always searching for like the richest client okay that, yeah that that is where they will be able to have like more free reign um, over what they can do so um, mm-hmm. you know usually those I I feel like those people are are kind of completely ignoring the world that they live in <laughs> um, um, I mean they're Maybe they're not completely ignoring it. They're just focusing on, you know, one part of the world. And um, and that, you know, they could become very successful that way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's a yeah, market for it. something today like let's say you had unlimited resources where do you see the need to build something well okay so for sure a hundred percent I would build housing in Los Angeles for people who don't have shelter I, I would yeah there have been a lot of um sweeps uh done by the sanitation department recently of um different areas of homeless encampments and they've destroyed so much, so many personal, um, you know, things that, that these people own, um, and have destroyed their tent, destroyed any like letters that they've had from loved ones, anything that they've been holding on to, you know, since becoming um, homeless, all of that has been destroyed. And and now these people, you know, are caught in this like bureaucratic system where even if they, even if there's this shelter that can give them a spot, they're like not in the, that's not, um, 
they don't qualify for that spot because they didn't huh. come from a certain region, oh, etc. So yeah, I would for sure build. Um, I would for sure build um, housing, and and I think I would do it in in unconventional areas. I mm-hmm. wouldn't do it in like just a, a lot. I would definitely figure out a way to use all of this public land that we're yeah. not using right now, such as you know where people are already building encampments, like you know. Yeah, like how could you make that space work for them in in a sense? Or uh, yeah, I I think that would be amazing. I I hope one day you can. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Is there any uh, architects or or buildings that have inspired you in your travels or in your studies? Yeah, definitely. I like I said earlier, I'm always more inspired by people who just had the felt compelled to build rather than like actual architects Mm -hmm. um and so in in the traveling that i've done around the u.s um i've been really inspired by um well house on the rock which is in wisconsin and is a very strange place Uh um basically is this um weird museum of a bunch of collections but it's built and based around this mm-hmm. house that was built um uh, a surreal kind huh. of um experience because there's all these levels inside there's like shag carpeting there's so much stained glass there's a room called the infinity room mm-hmm. that you know is, is an illusion <laughs> that what? it just like tapers off and so that that's something that was really inspiring to me also this um, I think it's like the largest tree house in the world, maybe in, um, wow. just in the U.S., but it's in um, Crossville, Tennessee, which is just east of uh, Nashville, and it's a tree house that, it's also called the Minister's Tree House, and it's built um, on like six trees, and it's a massive wow. building. Um, I mean, I, I got to go in it, but Really? It's, That's like, amazing. Yeah, it's it's, it's, like, definitely not up to code. It's, like, routinely shut down by the fire department. Like, oh, God. You really have, you have to, like, cross a bunch of fences that say no trespassing until you get there, and then you, like, you know, can buy a ticket and go in or something. Um, <laughs> that but that, that's amazing. pretty incredible. Um, and then also Watts Towers, which is in Watts, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That was built by this, I think, an Italian immigrant um, who just collected uh, glass and the kind of wrought iron that's like put mm-hmm. in reinforced concrete. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. So he made these like uh, towers out of this uh, metal and um, concrete and then created like mosaics with broken pottery and broken oh, glass wow, that, that sounds... he would find on the side of the railway. Um, well, that sounds so moving. I, I love how architects like repurpose materials like I think that's beautiful yeah I mean I think that like yeah fundamentally what I think I'm interested in is the creation of space um Mm -hmm. that that is um that gives you an experience that you would not have been able to achieve like any in any other space I feel like people who are building these beautiful spaces don't necessarily need to be architects. They just need to be inspired. Yeah, definitely. To take on this like huge project of creating space. Yeah. 
Well, is there anything else that you wanted to add about kind of what you've been exploring artistically or creatively at the moment? Well, today I'm actually very excited because I'm going to be making um, a shirt out of uh, a bed sheet. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very pandemic of me, but um, yeah, I find that you know, budgets are tight everywhere. Yeah. And my, mine, mine has certainly become very tight during this mm-hmm. uh, pandemic and the economy. Um, so I've started to cannibalize our sheets in order <laughs> to build, in order to make clothes, and not out of necessity, just out of you know. Well, actually, I think the sheet will serve me best now if I <laughs> use it to make a shirt rather than, because it's just going to sit in the closet for who knows how long, so. Yeah, um, I love that. I hope you make, like, an entire outfit and you could be, like, fitted in the sheet, like, from head to toe. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's where I'm going <laughs> yeah. um, right now. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely going to start doing that when we finish our call, because <laughs> um, I, I feel, like, obsessed with sewing right now. Like, it's, like, all I'm thinking about. Um, <laughs> I can't wait Which to is see great. it. Yeah. yeah. Where can people find you to like explore your work? Well, so I, I have um, two websites, <laughs> but one of them, um, which is the one that has more of my personal work on it, is claradykstra.com. Um, so just my first name and last name, mm-hmm. dot com. Uh, and that's, that's a lot of the work that I did in school. And, and some work that I did outside of school, but um, that, that's, that work is more personal to me, and yeah. um, it's really looking at stuff that I felt I wanted to explore. I also have an arc.clairedextra.com, which is this arch.clairedextra.com, oh, yeah. um, and that's, that's like the work that I've done professionally okay which is um interesting to look at uh but it's it kind of shows you know the difference between what what someone's interests can be and then right what, what their work is do, yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's great thank you so much for being on this call it was really fascinating to hear about all your projects yeah thanks so much for calling me and for having me on the pod (laughs) you're welcome i'm so excited okay well i'll talk to you soon okay take care okay bye-bye bye an alternative world that's what stood out to me in my conversation with clara an architect can choose to build the world they want to see instigate change by creating spaces that alter power dynamics. I found this to be such an inspiring thought, which could be applied to all art forms. Writers can write stories that present a world we can aspire to. And the same goes for painters, sculptors, musicians. The more and more I think about it, that feels like the most important reason to create. It gives me hope. We have the resources right at our fingertips to make something idealistic and real. Maybe, bit by bit, we can become closer to a more equal and good world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creativity Calls. I'm your host, Mormay Zanki, and this podcast was produced by myself in my bedroom somewhere in suburbia.
Special thanks to Clara Dykstra for her time and inspiring words. I also want to encourage any listeners who are interested in learning more about St. Patrick's Island and Fort Calgary to visit the Calgary Municipal Land Corporation's website, calgarymlc.ca, and Fort Calgary's website, fortcalgary.com. These were the resources I used to inform my research for this episode, and in particular, I encourage you to check out Fort Calgary's Complex Stories blog and podcast, which is terrific if you are looking for an introduction to the historic importance of Treaty 7 land. If you want to be the first to know when the next Creativity Calls episode is live, please subscribe and follow me at Creativity Calls Pod on Instagram. I hope you're staying inspired and safe in your corner of the world.